Welcome to Ivy League Murders, where we deep dive on cases related to academia. We discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. My name is Sarah. I went to Harvard, and I'm a working private investigator in Boston. My name is Laura. I have deep connections to law enforcement and luxury, but crime is my hobby. And together, we're Ivy League Murders. Hey, Laura. Hey, Sarah. Happy New Year. Here we are. Here we are. Another year. Hopefully it's a good one. Oh, here in snowy Massachusetts. I know, but we're having a snow day, so it's kind of nice. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're snow day and we talk about crime. I know. That's only eerie people like us enjoy that. This is a case that you and I have resisted for quite a while. Once we got into this case, my God, it's it's a very, very interesting case. Yeah, it's a case that didn't initially get my attention too much. I mean, it seems like it's a, a pretty shocking case, but I think that the randomness of it made it not quite as interesting to me. But little did I know until I went a little deeper. It's fascinating. It is. It is. Isn't that the truth with so many of our cases? Too? So many. And this case is particularly chilling to me, Sarah. Oh, yeah. Covering it on a day like today makes it even more chilling. Okay. With that, let's start. Let's okay. dig in. On a Vermont summer evening in June of 2000, Andrew Patty was reading to his young son a bedtime story in their cozy Vermont getaway. Both son and father were exhausted from a long trek in the wood. Apparently they'd gone into the woods and they had actually gotten lost. And that's scary. With a little kid, finally they found their way back, but it was like hours and hours and hours in the woods. They'd gotten lost and were relieved to come back to the warm sanctuary of their home. The quiet night was shattered when someone pounded on Patty's door. On Patty's porch stood a forlorn-looking teenager. What's up, Patty asked. Got car trouble, can you help me out? A native New Yorker, Patty didn't want to open the door for this kid. Something just didn't feel right. People had broken down before on the country road and the Patties had helped. But earlier that evening, Patty had had the feeling that he and his son were being watched, and his spidey senses were up. No, he told the young man on the porch. Come on, can't you let me in? No, Patty repeated. Can I use your phone? Patty stepped closer to the windowed door and showed the stranger his Glock. Whoa, the teen said and disappeared into the night. Patty picked up the phone, but somebody had cut the line, and the queasy feeling that they were being watched washed over him again. Andrew Patty stayed up all night standing guard over his young son. At daybreak, he went out, Glock in hand. Whoever the intruders were, they were gone. What he didn't know is that two young men had been stalking his house and planning a robbery and murder, and they had dug two graves near his house. Absolutely chilling. And let's oh. remind everyone, this is before people, everyone had cell phones. Before, oh, abs- yeah, yes. absolutely. This is landline, ver- right. rural Vermont. It's terrifying. The French have a phrase called folie à deux, which literally translates to a delusion shared between two people. Kind of like us, Laura. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this week- I'd say we have an obsession more than a delusion. Yeah. <laughs> I like to tell myself that. This week, we look at a case where two seemingly normal young men were plotting a terrifying thrill kill. Much like Leopold and Loeb, they, quote, wanted to feel what it was like to kill somebody. 
Their unlucky targets were both beloved Dartmouth professors, and unlike Patty, they opened their doors to unspeakable horror. Thank God Patty had that New York street smart. I think I might have opened that door. Yeah, it's one of those things, and I read a lot of true crime. It's like if you get that, if you get that creepy feeling, follow your instinct. Trust Do your not. gut. Yeah, yeah, trust your gut. Suzanne and Hoff Samtop were German immigrants who met at Stanford and married in 1970. Suzanne had studied comparative literature at Harvard and was head of the German department at Dartmouth. Hoff had grown up in post-war Germany and, like Suzanne, made it his lifelong mission to do good in the world. His name, in fact, means help in German. He was a geologist and taught earth sciences at Dartmouth. Both Suzanne and Hoff grew up in the long shadow of the Third Reich, and it's as if they wanted to personally right the terrible wrong Germany had inflicted on the world during the war. The Zantops were a beloved fixture at Dartmouth, both academically and in their warm embrace of both staff and students. I read the book twice about this. It's called Judgment Ridge. Very, very good book, by the way. There's just nothing bad you can say about these people. They were so wholesome. They were so kind. Just absolutely good people to the core. They were also very much in love, even after decades of being together. With their daughters, Veronica and Mariana, grown up and launched into their own rich lives, by 2001, the Zantops were looking forward to retirement. They lived in a modern house in Etna, New Hampshire, decorated by antiques and art that they had collected from their various travels. So Etna's a sleepy little upscale town. It's just a few miles away from where Dartmouth College is, and we went up there. It's a beautiful house. Yeah, very modern. Very we're... much more modern. We, we went up there, and we went to the house and got as close as we could, and it's a gorgeous house. And it's, it really is postcard, beautiful there. Large homes. It's where all, a lot of the professors who teach at Dartmouth live. And, and it's Vermont and it's New Hampshire. It is postcard perfect. Right. It's, this is an affluent area. Yeah. Nice restaurants. Sarah and I went into downtown Dartmouth. It just couldn't be cuter. Yeah. I mean, this is like if you want to film a movie about downtown. About a New England college. college town. I mean, you wouldn't even have to put up any sets. This is it. Just simply adorable. Absolutely. And, And really, we cannot stress the wholesomeness of like Vermont and New Hampshire. It's very rural. You know, think like maple syrup and foliage and, you know, barns and covered bridges. I mean, there's bad parts of these areas, but not not where we are in in this town. Yeah, exactly. And and the Zantops were such an important part of the the Dartmouth College. They were really cool people. They would summer at this lakeside cabins. They were very holistic and they would, I love their description of them summering at these cabins and they would literally go and pick mushrooms and they would fish and then they would cook these things and in a campfire and earthy kind of down to earth people i think that they were a big part of you know they weren't isolators they planned with people all the time they with their students they very engaged right they were very engaged with their colleagues so they were very much part of their community and they would often have students come over to their house too and colleagues and you're right they were out and about very much a part of the fabric of that community absolutely yeah and very approachable so on the night of january 27th 2001 a colleague of the zantops roxana verona went to their house for dinner a light snow had settled around the zantop home it was silent 
when Verona knocked the door, the Zantop's door was unlocked, which was actually unusual. Like a lot of people would leave their doors unlocked in Etna because what the hell, nothing's going to happen at, in Etna, right? But they would lock it. As Verona entered the door, she got a very bad feeling and she called out their name. Verona could see the food that they had been preparing in the kitchen. When she stepped into Hoff's study, she saw the bloody and lifeless bodies of her friend. Verona ran in a panic to the neighbor's house, who was a doctor, and they called 911. When the police responded to the brutal scene, they first thought it was a murder or suicide, which actually would be the most common thought, especially sure. in this area. They never saw this type of murder. Uh, a domestic would be the most common yeah, thought. You're right. This type of bloodshed never took place in Etna. Both Hoff and Susanna had both had their throats slashed and had been stabbed repeatedly. This had been such a frenzied kill. How could it not be personal? Mm -hmm. The Hanover police quickly enlisted the New Hampshire state troopers. The fact that the Zantops were Dartmouth professors very quickly garnered worldwide headlines. Ivy League professors murdered. Mm -hmm. And very quickly, you know, they were looking into salacious, thinking this was an affair or... Yep. I mean, because what would you think? What motive? I mean, most murders are committed by someone you know. And why would anybody kill these two darling people? Uh, absolutely. And there were two knife sheets found at the scene. These are SOG Navy SEAL knives, about a foot long. These are, the, the sheaths are about a foot long. Yeah. And the knives, I guess, are about like, I think, to eight to 10 inches long. And so there were two she's found at the scene indicating to the police that there were maybe two perpetrators. There were also blood drips and a partial bloody boot print that were found in the foyer leading outside into the snow. So as a word spread about the murder that the Zantops were Ivy League professors, it just fueled this like media storm. And speculation and conspiracy theories sprouted up. It must be a disgruntled student. I mean, everybody had an opinion right. about like, who killed these professors. A colleague who wanted his job that was another one somebody's gonna kill for that position and then and or one of them must have been having an affair right, which right. is really sort of so offensive but aside from the from the sog combat knife sheaths and a bloody boot print, there wasn't enough to tie anybody to the scene. When the police did victimology, the Xantops just didn't seem to have any enemies. You brought up that point, which is, is so true, because the police will do victimology. They'll try to create a profile of, you Of know, the victim, and most people are killed by somebody they know. So you do the victimology, and you do, like, the circle around the victim, and, and it's you find all the connections, and, and you find the motive. Who, who this person knows has reason to kill them. And this is how you find people with motives. When the killer has absolutely no connection to the victim, it's literally impossible. This is why serial killers become so impossible to find. So this is when the case becomes purely an evidence case and, because and, there's no other connection. And literally the police were talking to everybody that the Zantops knew. Everybody. And, and, and everybody just had glowing things and like they had no enemies, which is so unusual. Right. And believe me, please go down every avenue in these cases because it could be the smallest thing. It could be a debt they don't know about. I mean, people have well, well, all in, kinds of habits you don't know about. Well, in fact, they found they found a student that had had an argument with Hoff in one of his recent lectures. And so it was strangely, when the police question the student he had an open wound on his head which is always so you think okay bingo we we, we got right. him 
And then it, it seemed like it was a promising lead. But the, the student said that the argument was just they would banter and joke around and somebody had taken it the wrong way. And they also had, more importantly, a solid alibi for when Hoff and Suzanne were murdered. And then there was a fellow professor who had gotten thrown over. Hoff had gotten a position that this guy had wanted. And then they thought that his car trunk had tested positive for blood. And I had heard that it was actually turned out to be Deer's blood and that it or it wasn't blood. But in any case, it yeah. just was a dead lead. Time kills all investigations and the police were just running out of leads. And really, in fact, the Zantops were just victims of horribly dumb luck. And that really their fatal flaw was their kindness and their willingness to open their doors to help young students. Behind the scenes, the police were working exhaustively, like we said, to trace the sale of the two SOG knives because those were really the only leads. And because there were two she's found, it was thought there, that there might be two perpetrators. The fact that the she's were left at the scene and because of the sloppiness of the crime scene, the police surmised that the perpetrators were either young, inexperienced, or both. And they had identified the bloody boot print to be a Vasque brand boot. I'd never heard of this it's brand. A, it's specialized hiking, but okay. I would assume in, uh, in in Vermont, New Hampshire, that wouldn't be too uncommon where people yeah. use hiking boots fairly commonly. Yeah, that's true. But without a suspect or a boot to match it to, I the, think they found a fingerprint as well. Really, the sheaths are the best evidence because it's kind of a big thing. It gives them somewhere to start and they start to investigate. Where, where were those sheaths? Where were those knives sold? That's what they're they're hunting down. And it's a pretty big lead. So Chelsea, Vermont is a typical pretty small shire about 45 minutes from Etna, but culturally it could not be more different. So with a rural population of 1,200 and small town middle-class values, there just doesn't seem to be much going on in Chelsea. The murder of two Dartmouth professors was big news and on the minds of everyone in Chelsea. You pointed out that there had not been a murder like this since... Right, well... (laughs) Pamela Smart, which was the biggest case, which was 1990, and one of my personal favorites. If if you look up the Pamela Smart case, I wish there was an Ivy connection to it. It's a... (laughs) There's nothing Ivy about that. It's an unbelievable... There's nothing (laughs) Ivy about it. It's the case of a high school or a teacher getting a student to kill her husband, if you don't know the case. So the murder of two Dartmouth professors, like I said, was super big news and on the minds of everyone in Chelsea whispers of who could have done this world. This type of brutal crime just didn't happen in Vermont and New Hampshire. This picturesque land of barns and like we said, really postcard perfect. And it just it's just a wholesomeness mm-hmm. and, and really not much to do. And certainly that's how 17-year-old Robert Tullock and 16-year-old Jim Parker felt. They couldn't wait to leave Chelsea. Tullock and Parker were both bright, high-achieving students. Tullock was on the debate team and was known to be really arrogant. He would just insult the other members. And the teacher said he was really talented but and smart, but lazy. And rude. I think he was just kind of rude. Kind of, but liked. I think he was just kind of oh, a jerk. Like kind of a jerk. People liked him. Totally. Yeah, yeah. And he, he thought he was smarter than the teachers. Parker was more of a follower and sort of fell into Tullock's thrall. Together, they started crafting a plan to get out of Chelsea. Where were they going to go? They wanted to go to Australia, but they needed money and they needed a plan. Yeah, so these two, for Christ's sakes. 
real magical thinking. I mean, Australia of all places, like they, it was just real magical thinking, you know, unrealistic. I mean, not even like California or something that could maybe have something doable. You know, they pick around the world. They they started out with these really boyish capers. They would steal like a construction vehicle and go drive it around and then get in trouble a little bit here and there. Just kind of rural Vermont thing. Why am I thinking of rural juror? The um, rural from Thirty Rock. Remember rural rural juror. Rural, rural, rural. Oh my god, I haven't heard that in so long. But you know, this is how it starts with Leopold and Loeb. It's little thefts, and it kind of. I feel like it starts that way to like push the limits, and especially in like a folly ado, it's like let's see how far the other person will go. Then Robert's plan really starts to sort of take a darker turn. Robert, I think, is just sort of wired differently. And Jim, the the follower, went right along with it. So they come up with this plan. This is where the folie de happens. First, they start talking about robbing people. And then, okay, that seems okay. Then, then Tullock, Robert Tullock, starts talking about the fact that they need to torture ATM pin numbers out of people and then kill them to not leave any witnesses. How they arrive at that this is a good idea? <laughs> Who knows? This is the mystery. I know. feel like Robert uses the, the, the robbery as a way to, to justify the killing. But for Jim, it's really more about the robbery. <laughs> I think they were bored kids who are pretty smart. What, what's interesting about these two is that they're not rejects. They're not a, no, a they're, Klebold and Harris. No. They're, they're not rejects. They are really, they're pretty popular kids. One of them has a girlfriend. They are athletic. They're, they're kind of the alpha males in their school, but they're not, something's wrong. <laughs> I mean, I just don't think it's complicated. I think it's similar to Cassie Stoddard case where we see the perpetrators talk about the murder on, on re- being recorded. The two perpetrators recorded themselves before and after murdering Cassie Stoddard. They were also in high school and they buried the tape, but police recovered it. And it's the same, th- you know, very similar dynamic. And you can hear them later, actually, while they're in prison, talking about it in their very... Uh, remorseful but when you hear them being recorded in the car before and after they do it to feel what it they want to know what it feels like to kill exactly and they're actually gleeful about it and i do think that there are look at the focus you know we we said we you and i even spend a lot of time talking about murder and i think there are certain people like them who just want to see what it feels like to kill yes and that's what we have here we had it with leopold and loeb I'm, I think that that was the motive. I think uh, we see killing, uh, that m- money is obviously a secondary. I think Tulloch is is the real sociopath Agreed. here. And I, and I think you brought up the point that he sort of grooms Jim to brings up the idea of murder. In fact, Robert suggests to Jim that they kill Tulloch's family dog and Jim doesn't go for it but you see this escalation where Tulloch is kind of they, they both kind of conspire to break into people's houses and then they're talking about doing them violence and then that moves on to the suggestion of murder so it's to see his reaction and I do think they both had the sense especially especially Robert Tulloch that they're better and smarter and they could k- kill somebody and get away with it it's the alpha you know? male mentality we we saw in Leopold and Loeb, 
And Tullock, I think, especially sees him as an alpha male superhuman. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Nietzsche is this a Nietzsche-ish? Like I'm better than everyone else, and Absolutely. I have, yeah. I have the right. If I want to feel this, I kind of have the right to step on others to feel this. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think we see this this here again. I think the stalking is sort of part of the thrill. It's oh, part of the like whole cause, thing. causing fear. Digging yeah. the graves is part of the... I mean, the whole thing was just part of this adventure. Like, I think you said, they're in a horror movie. They're the stars. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, it, as opposed to the Cassie Stoddard um, case where she, they knew her, they were friends with her. She was a really attractive, right. really pretty girl that they chose they chose to kill instead like bobby franks in the leopold and loeb case the, the victim was just chosen at random this was a door knock you're a door knock away from being killed and what's know? even scarier um sarah right is as we discussed earlier the door knock could have been to the neighbors who had a family yes and yep. they had discussed we find out later that they would have been perfectly willing to kill children yeah and the yeah. neighbors weren't home yeah yeah. And I really do think like Jim Parker would not have killed without Robert Tullock, but I believe Robert was the real thing. Absolutely. Oh yeah. I mean, he was definitely the instigator. And I think had he not found Jim Parker, he would have found a girlfriend, mm-hmm. another friend. Uh, he would have found a crew, somebody else to have partaken in this, in some, another plan with him. Yeah. And then, you know, it's a, really the parallels between Leopold and Loeb are are really interesting. We're going to discuss those a little bit a little bit later on in the podcast. So meanwhile, the police investigation is ongoing obviously. One thing we we need to mention too in speaking to witnesses, the police discovered that Hulf Zantop always carried his wallet and his wallet was missing. There was $340 in it. They are also diligently searching for these SOG combat knives remember at the scene they find the two she's and i have to give it up to the police on this one laura and i laura especially is very pro law enforcement but we see a lot of cases where we have to be very critical of the police but in this case hands off to the police they did an excellent job and they were very diligent very diligent and they're just this is routine they're just finding out people who purchase these sog combat knives where they were purchased when they were purchased by whom they were purchased so they trace they 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 basically show up at the door of the parkers they knock on the door and they say we are investigating the murder of the zantops the dartmouth professors can we talk to jim parker because we have found that he purchased two of these knives right Right, and they they think this is just another check off the box right you know they don't think that this is a a murder suspect initially you know this is a middle class family clean cut boy absolutely and john parker the father of jim answered the door and he's a little baffled that the police were investigating the dartmouth professor homicides but he let the police talk to jim now when the police talked to jim he seemed nervous and jim told the investigators that yes indeed he had bought the two knives with his friend Robert Tullock, but that they had sold the knives. I don't know how the police are feeling at this point, but then, of course, they go and speak to Robert Tullock. I think they're, because they tell them that they go to a local Army-Navy store and they sell them out front. So I think the police initially are thinking, well, we better find the killers they sold these to. Exactly. Because they're not thinking these kids are the killers. They don't really fit. This is like a clean-cut suburban family. They don't fit the profile. They don't. And then, so the police go and talk to Robert Tullock. 
Tullet. So Tullet gives them a story that's suspiciously identical to Jim Parker's, almost like it's rehearsed. Because it probably was rehearsed. Oh, yeah. It was just a little too neat. And so they also asked Tullock to hand over any footwear he had. And so Tullock very calmly hands them over a pair of Vasque boots. And if you remember, they found a bloody footprint at the scene that was traced back to a Vasque boot. And I'm guessing that the police are very suspicious right at this moment. Yes, but they take them down to the station, they interview them, but they just do not have enough to hold these kids. They have right. nothing but suspicion. There's no solid evidence to hold them on. And James Parker is a minor, so they, they let them go back to their parents' house, something that will be a, a bone of contention later. The police were suspicious enough at this time to se- secure a search warrant for both of the, the Tullock house and the Parker house. They also called in their head forensic specialist to do the comparison between the footprint and Tullock's boot print. And also the fingerprint that they found, one fingerprint at the scene. So right. they, they get their forensic expert to come in. But meanwhile, guess what? I know what happened, Sarah, so tell the listeners. (laughs) Robert Tullock and Jim Parker take off in Jim Parker's father's Audi. So they, unbeknownst to their parents, unbeknownst to anybody, they flee in the night. And it's not reported until the next morning. And so this is just a crazy night. Now, the forensic specialist is brought in at midnight. Now, he's brought in at midnight, and by 3 a.m., he makes a match. He makes a match to not only the Vasque boot. But also the fingerprint. The fingerprint belongs to Jim Parker. They have got these guys cold. They go and... and, and Try to apprehend them. And at the same time, Sarah, what do they find in in the search warrant? They find the actual SOG knives that match those sheaths. The murder weapon. The they murder weapon. the murder I mean, weapon. Bingo. These kids cannot escape these knives. These kids are just such bad criminals. I mean, they literally escape town and leave the murder weapons in like his, his night nighttime drawer. Yeah, but first they, they leave the sheaths. I think if they had not left the sheaths at the murder scene. Oh, they scene, never would have been caught. They never would have No, never would have been guys. caught. So this is another parallel to Leopold and Loeb. Leopold and Loeb were not going too far into it because we've done several episodes on Leopold Loeb, frankly. So look back at our at our library. However, this is another parallel that where the saw knives lead right back to these two. Whereas in Leopold and Loeb, if Leopold had not dropped his glasses, which were very distinctive glasses, they would have never traced that murder, Bobby Frank's murder back to Leopold and Loeb. So remember, Chelsea, Vermont is this little tiny population of 1,200 people. That morning, when the police have gathered the evidence, there is police car, police, like just huge fleet of police from all sorts of different jurisdictions that land on this town and they're interviewing people. They're interviewing everybody who know Jim and Robert and trying to find out more about them. They also go to Jim and Robert's school and they shut it down because they are afraid of a, of a like a Columbine, like they're going to come back right. and attack the school. And let's not forget the anger that you know, develops in New Hampshire and the jurisdiction where the crime took place oh, they're because, pi- they're pissed, because they've lost because, these because crime was, suspects. Oh, they were furious. Curious because they had them and they sent them back home. Obviously, Robert and Jim took off. Now, meanwhile, they take off. They drive the Audi that they have 
to Sturbridge, Massachusetts. Sturbridge is a network of, of highways. So they're hoping, I think Jim and Robert are hoping that they're going to be able to ditch the car because they know that obviously there's a bolo out now. They're hoping to ditch, the, get some truckers to, to pick them up. Can I just mention one thing about this bolo? So on the bolo, obviously it's got the picture of both of them. And if you remember the very first part of the pod where Andrew Patty is in his house in Vermont and kid knocks on the door and he's suspicious and thank God he didn't open the door. He sees the bolo and he sees a picture of Robert Tullock. And can you imagine what is going to oh, He I was just, even. I can't. Chilling. 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 So Robert and Jim are in Sturbridge and they find a trucker, actually a couple who are willing to pick them up. So they drive them a certain distance. They give them a whole, they give them false names. They give them, we're trying to go out to California, blah, blah, blah. And these truckers drive them a little bit further west. I'm not exactly sure where they drop them off, but they drop them off at another place. They broadcast out, hey, I've got these two boys are looking for a ride out west. Right, they connect them to another trucker who, yeah. who continues to drive them yep yep who continues to drive them but unbeknownst to robert and jim the police are tracking the beam on this on i guess there's gps tracking on top of big rigs and they're tracking this and so that the boys aren't going to like stab the trucker and take off with the truck or leave mm-hmm. or what have you they pose as a trucker that's willing to pick them up right. kind of thing. To lure them in. But they get to Indiana. I mean, they get to yeah. Indiana. They're stopped. They give the police officer false names. You know, they say they're from Encino, but they can't even spell it. And obviously they're arrested, you know, right away. Right. But this is a huge case. This is a huge case for, I mean, the FBI is involved, state police, local police, just everybody wants to. With absolutely overwhelming evidence. I mean, there's murder weapons, there's fingerprints, there's blood evidence. So Tullock and Parker are dragged back to New Hampshire where they face charges. They face life in prison. Oh, yeah. And it's not surprising that Parker folds very quickly and turns evidence against Tullock. Parker does seem to show some remorse and he immediately tells the police everything that happened and admits his part in the murder. Parker takes a plea deal. He's 16, so there's some there 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 is a like juvenile determinant hearing for him whether Absolutely. he's going to be tried as an adult. Had he been uh, determined to be a juvenile, uh, this would have all been fairly moot. He would have been out of custody by 21. So he's determined to be an adult and then he quickly cooperates with authorities. Yep. And makes a plea. And the full scope of the crime is revealed, basically. It is revealed. And we really do see Tullock as the ringleader. He is the absolute mastermind. And what happened that day from the interviews that they garnered from Tullock and Parker, as you said, they knocked on the neighbor's door first. They weren't home. Thank God. So they knocked at the Zantop's door at random that fateful day. They posed as local private school students who were conducting an environmental survey. Hoff Zantop opened the door and invited them, two seemingly earnest young men, into his study. As they sat in the study, Hoff turned his back to give the boys, he was turning his back to give the boys a contact number. Right. And he was kind of giving them suggestions about the survey mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff, being helpful as as he was. And at that point, 
Tullock struck, like stabbing Hulf in the neck. Hulf screamed, and his screams draws Suzanne into the study, who thought that her husband, who had an underlying heart condition, was having a heart attack. It's at this point that Robert could have come to Suzanne's aid. He could have fought off Robert, could have run away, but Robert's psychopathy had infected Jim, and when he ordered him to kill Suzanne, Robert slit her throat. The really psycho part of this, though, essentially they're both dead at this point. Robert Tullock takes the sog knife and and stabs Suzanne Zantop several times in the head. Right, it's overkill. It's it right. is. it's brutal. And and although we do, Tullock is the mastermind. I we can't mitigate Parker's role in this because he you know he too was there for this brutal murder and did participate. Right, right. There's all kinds of shenanigans at the court. I think Tullock tries this insanity plea. And, he does. And then ultimately, I think he wants to be remembered as, you know, I think he he has this mystique with killers. So he wants to be remembered as this brutal killer. So he... Yeah, they wanted to be hitmen in uh, Australia right. with their sog knives that they forgot. Right. So he winds up against his lawyer's advice, openly admitting the brutality of this murder in court, and he is sentenced to life without parole. And he is stony-faced, by Stony-faced. Parker Tullic- is very remorseful. Parker is remorseful. What's interesting about Parker is that he's up for parole in, in May. May of this year, 2024. We're trying to talk to him. Yeah, and that's so. the earliest possible date. That's the earliest possible date. So we'll keep you posted. Uh, we'll see what happens. Apparently, Jim is like a model prisoner who does yoga and blah, blah, blah. Not surprised. You're not surprised? No. Right. So you you have a thing about yoga. Get over it, okay? No, no, I'm not surprised. about. It's not the yoga that I think yoga can lead to violence because I do. <laughs> but I think that... Uh, I think a lot of yoga people are secretly kind of Stop crazy. Stop it. Can you please? But okay. I think that it doesn't surprise me that he's a model prisoner. I think he did feel a lot of remorse. Both Marion and Veronica Zantop, the daughters, have lobbied against his parole, and well, they should. And we'll see in May whether he gets out or not. Right. We, yeah. we shall see. Yeah. On the 20th anniversary of the murder... Friends and former colleagues of the Zantops, as well as family, lit candles and lay flowers at a garden named in their honor at Dartmouth College. Doesn't that sound beautiful, Sarah? It does. It does. Yeah, and it's a place that their daughters can always go and remember them, their colleagues. So it's some place for them to be honored. The couple was remembered for their kindness, love, and commitment to the community and education. This heinous crime has left the communities, both communities, Sarah, continuing to ask why. Why? 